We've been walking through, uh, for the last four weeks, a series on forgiveness. And we started that off by looking at the toxic effects of unforgiveness in your life. And the story of Jonah, he, he flees from God. He'd rather die than go, go and preach to the people in Nineveh. And, and he doesn't end that story ever turning that around. Uh, but God is left there posing that question of if it's right to be angry. And then we move from that text uh, to talk about uh, that mindset when you're like, well, how many times do I need to forgive? So let's say I'll forgive, but, but where's the limit of that? And, and potentially the, the dangers and the problems of that because we've had a lot that we've been forgiven of, um, and yet we want to forgive just a little bit. And then last week we looked at Joseph and his brothers, and no matter what their motives were, they actually came asking for forgiveness and what that process was like for Joseph and that it was still painful. He didn't forgive because the pain had gone away, um, but because he was opening a new door and was trying to um, bring peace about uh, for his brothers. And so today we are moving to our last week on forgiveness uh, in this series. And uh, to distinguish ourselves from last week, where you had that other member who wanted forgiveness, this is, this is the challenge of what happens when I need to forgive somebody, but yet they don't even want to ask for it. Or maybe they're not even around anymore, and they, they physically can't come and apologize. Uh, what about those situations in which forgiveness is a little bit more challenging than normal? And so my question is, is there any value in forgiving those who don't seek forgiveness? So that's our, our question governing this text today. And so I, I made a decision to, to share the end of Stephen's speech before you get to the angry mob and before you get to him getting to a place of kind of wanting forgiveness for this angry mob because I thought you'd be a little bit confused of why are they enraged? What did he just say? And I think that it's an important thing to include because it helps us see that I've got problems, and you've got problems, and we've all got problems. Some of our problems are bad actions and behaviors, and some of our problems are bad mouths that say things that aren't helpful or aren't loving. And so I'm going to read again um, that kind of pointed end to his speech. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the laws ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. So Stephen is standing in front of this kind of council of Jewish religious officials, and they're confused and they're unsure of how these Jesus followers relate to the law and to Moses. And so Stephen goes through this long history of the Jewish faith, and then he points to the crowd in a way that they would not appreciate. He says, you know all of those bad guys and all of those stories I recounted? You're the bad guys. Everyone that opposed what God was doing, you opposed what God's doing. Everyone that murdered the prophets, you're the murderers of the prophets. And as you can imagine, that didn't go over very well. Uh, he, he had quite strong accusations. And so 
I wanted to mention a couple of those accusations because they, they get to some reoccurring motifs and some important moments in the Old Testament. He, he says at the beginning, uh, he calls them stiff-necked people. And that might seem strange, like out of all insults, why call them stiff-necked people? Uh, but if you recall or if you've never heard of the story of the golden calf, when the Israelite people had, had left Egypt, and they come to this mountain, and in this mountain they're getting um, commandments that they're going to follow, and a covenant of agreement of how you're going to live and act in relationship to God. And while they're getting commands that say things like, uh, you shall have no other gods, you shouldn't make graven images, the people get bored, they get impatient, and they decide, let's make our own God, because Moses has gone too long. And so God doesn't look too happily on that, and Moses doesn't look too happily on that. And uh, so when Moses comes down the mountain, uh, here's one of the things that he says in Exodus 33. Uh, the Lord tells Moses, Go there, uh, leave this place, you and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Go to the land which I swore to your ancestors. And it goes on to say, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, or I would consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard these harsh words, they mourned, and no one put on ornaments. They're not putting on ornaments because they just were burning them into a golden calf. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You are a a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off those ornaments, and I will decide what to do to you. So here's like the angry parent deciding, I don't know what I'm going to do to you yet, but you're not going to like it, you stiff-necked people. And that's the kind of language Stephen's invoking here. Uh, Judgment, uh, you're following after something that's not truly God, you're you're wandering away from what God is doing. And then he also tells them that they have uncircumcised hearts. And there's actually uh, several passages in the Old Testament where that kind of phrasing gets used. And I think it's important to know why that would be so significant. We are talking about a religious community who said, I know I'm right with God, and nobody else is, because I did this one act on my body. I did this medical procedure, and again, I'm sorry ladies, it's a male-oriented society we're talking about, that this image is a male-oriented image. Uh, But circumcision was this act that said, I belong to God and other people don't. And you see some prophets throughout the Old Testament say things like, okay, so you circumcise the outside of yourself, but your heart hasn't been touched. The thing that actually matters, the, the inside thing, is still as cold and as hard as it could ever be. So whatever the outward appearances are, whatever you've put your faith in because you can see it, uh, something is still not right in you. And so Stephen is calling into that tradition too. You think you're following all these uh, uh, legal requirements, all of this kind of Torah rules and regulations, and that we, we seem to be maybe breaking some of them, uh, but your hearts aren't actually belonging to God. And so he's calling on these major traditions and using some pretty strong language, just calling them murderers, And that doesn't go over very well. And so I think we need to be aware that Stephen might have made an accurate assessment of the situation, 
But that doesn't mean he's right. And what I mean by that is, one of my favorite quotes is from Soren Kierkegaard, who said, some things are true when whispered, but not when shouted. It matters the way in which you communicate and the way in which you speak good news. And Stephen's not exactly warming himself up to this group. And when Peter had a similar time to give a speech earlier in Acts, he had a little bit more hope, a little bit more of God's moving in all of us. And even though you may have taken part in Jesus' execution uh, unlawfully, there's a chance for repentance, there's a chance for change, why don't you come with us? But Stephen doesn't give us any of that. It's just this strong-worded uh, rebuking of the people in front of him. And so the cycle of violence is going to continue. There's no sort of offer of forgiveness or a new door in that moment. We'll see that in a little bit. But it's, it's a messy world that we're jumping into. The people he's talking to are wrong for some of the way that they've acted and the way that they've dealt with uh, the, those who follow Christ. But maybe Stephen's not altogether perfect either. Maybe he's not altogether uh, blameless in his situation. And uh, an interesting thing happens in the next part of the story. Um, so we have that this didn't go over well in verse 54. When they heard these things, they became enraged, and I love the imagery it gives here, and ground their teeth at Stephen. While he keeps talking, they're, they're clenching. They don't want to talk anymore. And so they're going to resort to violence because they don't even want to be able to speak at this point. They can't speak at this point. Uh, but then something different happens. And Stephen sees what he needs to see. And it says, But filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, you might not catch this, but he's invoking... I see everything. God's on my side. That person that you, you executed, he's at the right hand of God. God is validating me and not you. Uh, and that's what Stephen needs to see. Perhaps that he needs confidence, he needs courage, he needs to know that what he's going through um, is true. But that doesn't mean he's going to be able to communicate that in a way that's going to be effective. And that's, that's often the case, that when you hear whatever you might need to hear on your spiritual journey, whatever God might be sharing in your life, it doesn't always communicate to those around you. And so, Stephen sees what he needs to see to make it through the rest of that day, but it doesn't communicate to others who don't have the vision. Uh, when they see, when this happens, it says, the people there covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. So they're saying, remember, their mouths are clenched. They're not going to talk. They're saying, la, 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 I'm not listening. <laughs> right? So it wasn't even enough to cover their ears. They're kind of shouting, too. And I think it's meant to be a little bit comical, but it's overplaying the scene. Uh, but there's no way in which his message is going to communicate with them in that moment. Uh, and so there was no forgiveness offered. It was just, here's the situation and here's the judgment that might be happening. And so the cycle of violence continues. And uh, I might add, even though this is a comical scene, 
we often do this ourselves. We hear things we don't want to hear. We cover our ears. If that doesn't work, we, we shout a little bit louder. Uh, in our digital age, sometimes that means uh, unfriending people on Facebook or muting them on Twitter. Or, um, you, you might have seen a family member post something you don't want to see, and so you, you just ignore them altogether. We all have different ways in which we decide we don't want to listen to that other person anymore. Uh, but this scene escalates because they're not able to communicate and they're not able to offer a new door. And so uh, one thing that I want us to take away is the importance of inviting people to experience things instead of just talking about the visions we have. Uh, if you remember, it's been over a month now, but we looked at the first chapter of John, my first series of sermons that we went through together. And a few times in that, people wanted to know uh, where Jesus was going or what is this all about, and the invitation was to come and see. And so sometimes it's not enough to just share statements of our belief and our faith um, because people might not be willing or ready or capable of hearing that just as proclamations. We need to invite people to experiences where they can see it for themselves in a way that communicates instead of just, well, you know, I heard God say this and you should just believe me. Uh, invite them along to see where God is at work in the world. Invite them along to see uh, where transformation is happening. But we don't get to have that because this scene is escalating quickly. And so the cycle of violence continues. In verse 58 it says, Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So they've decided um, he is blaspheming about God. Remember he just said, I have this vision. That guy that you said was, uh, was blaspheming about God and you killed, he's sitting at the right hand of God. And they're like, well, we thought Jesus was blaspheming. Now you're blaspheming. So they go and they get stones and they're going to stone him to death. And again, both sides feel like they are fully doing what is right in the eyes of God. Stephen thinks he's showing them what the true assessment of the world is. The crowd thinks that they are following God faithfully, justly, uh, and doing what is right. And they go to stone Stephen. And that gets us to the part of the story that I think is more fascinating. Because we don't have a crowd who wants to be forgiven. We don't have mutual parties trying to seek reconciliation. But yet Stephen offers something that is inspiring and is, is challenging to do in everyday life. And so here's what happens. While they were stoning Stephen, I mean, just really picture that. He, he's being in the midst of the process of being harmed. It's not like it's happened and he's forgiving later or anything like that. They are in the midst of throwing stones at him. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I think part of what is fascinating to me about that is it's not even just about him being able to forgive the people harming him, but also that he doesn't want to seek judgment on them, which doesn't really fit where we've seen that, that speech going earlier. Um, he seemed to be invoking judgment kinds of language, 
But here he is saying, God, don't hold this against them. Don't bring about judgment on them. Allow them uh, the opportunity for new life. And that's what's really challenging to get to. And I think our Christian tradition has various ways of trying to say this kind of a thing. Of, you know, it's easy to love those who love you. Well, what is it to love your enemies? And how challenging it is to actually love enemies. And what is it to, to be harmed and to wish that you could harm someone back? That's the natural reaction. But how much greater is it to ask for forgiveness for them, to pray for uh, judgments withholding from them? And that's a really challenging path. And I think it's, without, it's not unintentional that the author of Acts writes this story in the way that he writes it, because there's a lot of echoes to Luke chapter 23 in the way that Jesus' crucifixion unfolds, both about kind of giving up your spirit, but there's something in the, the tradition um, that is handed down to us in Luke chapter 23. When Jesus is on the cross, he's, he's standing there, he's laying up on that cross, and he turns and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And the idea that in the midst of the most horrible pain that you can imagine, that you would ask forgiveness for people who aren't even seeking it. And we are a forgiven people. We are people called to forgiveness. We are a people that pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that, that call isn't just about forgiving when it's easy, but it's about forgiving when it's hard. And it's when it's still painful. And that is a powerful and challenging image. And I think that the point, one of the points that's, that's being made here is that there's an opportunity for a new day. By offering forgiveness, by not seeking judgment, there's a new day possible for that crowd. And there's a new day possible for Saul, also named Paul, who's there when they're putting coats down at his feet while they're stoning Stephen. In chapter 8, verse 1, at the end of that passage, he says, it says that when he uh, had said this, he died, and Saul approved of their killing him. There was a new opportunity for people in that crowd. That cycle of violence would continue for a while. But just like Stephen didn't want judgment on the crowd, Paul and Saul, depending on however you want to call his name, when he encounters God on the way to Damascus, he's going to continue that persecution, continue that cycle of violence. But he doesn't meet a God who's bringing judgment down on him. He meets a God who's enduring violence and enduring persecution. And he has this vision and he hears Jesus saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't strike him down, but he opens his eyes on that story. And that's what, something, that's what forgiveness can do. Instead of offering retaliation and vengeance and violence, it allows us to open our eyes to new possibilities and new ways of living. It's almost October, and on October 2nd, uh, it'll be the 12-year anniversary of the West Nickel Mines School shooting in Pennsylvania, in the, in the Amish community there. 
That's a story in which uh, a gunman decided to take hostages in a schoolhouse and shot 10 schoolgirls aged 6 to 13, killing five before committing suicide. And sadly, that doesn't even feel shocking anymore. In the last 12 years, it seems like we hear more and more of those stories. And so the violence and the ugliness is kind of deadened, and you kind of expect it. But the, the story of forgiveness that came in the aftermath of that, I think, was incredibly inspiring then, and it continues to be inspiring. After that horrible, horrible incident, uh, the shooter's family thought, we can't ever show our faces again. Like, how on earth do we face our neighbors when our son has done something like this? And yet, when it came time for the shooter's funeral, uh, over 40 people from that Amish community, including parents of deceased children who had been to their own kids' funerals that day, showed up. They even like, stood in the way of kind of news cameras so that the family could grieve in peace. They went forward and offered condolences to the grieving parents, saying, we're sorry you lost your child. And the family, as you can imagine, at first doesn't know what to do with that. You know, how on earth can you be so forgiving? Surely you must actually hate us and resent us. And they held some gatherings together, where as a community, um, the parents got to meet with the community. And in the midst of that, um, the shooter's mother, Terry, um, saw the, the youngest of the victims that survived, a little girl named Rosanna. She had some brain in, in injuries, and she had to use a wheelchair. She had to eat through feeding tubes. Um, she had seizures. Uh, her life was never going to be the same. And Terry saw this little girl and asked, can I, once a week, can I help take care of her? And so once a week, for about a decade, until uh, Terry later passed away of, uh, of cancer not too long ago, she would go over and take care of that, uh, that child who was then a teenager not too long ago. And, and they were living out forgiveness. That who would think that you know, the parents of the shooters uh, would be able to build these strong bonds with the community who had suffered at her son's uh, hands. And so uh, that community did more than just show up at the funeral. They held an offering, they, held, uh, they collected funds to help support the shooter's family. They would build a sunroom for his parents' home, and they hung a single word above the sunroom's glass doors that said, forgiven. And you would never expect that community building possibility. And Terry, when she talked about it, said, uh, no one would ever imagine that on that horrible day, something like this would be formed from it. And because of the response of forgiveness, we were able to heal. So if we're looking to heal, and if we're looking to offer healing, we have to be a people of forgiveness. And not when it's easy, but when it's hard. And what we are offering is new doors, new paths that don't usually get taken. Instead of the path of retaliation and continuing the violence and continuing more trauma and tragedy, opening up new possibilities that people would never expect to happen. 
opening up the doors that people like Saul could walk through and end up becoming one of the champions of the Christian movement instead of the persecutor of it. You may think that forgiveness is pointless, that person doesn't care, they're not paying attention, that maybe they're, they've passed on and, and you can't uh, interact with them. But forgiveness offers healing for yourself and it offers healing for other people around you. You don't know who's going to be healed or touched by forgiveness, but it's worth offering. And so it, we don't know how transformation might come. I want to mention in closing um, this basket over here. I'll walk over here. Uh, of forgiveness rocks. So uh, I see several folks have, have already offered up these rocks um, that I uh, have asked us to carry around throughout this series. That pain that you've experienced that maybe you've carried around if you took one of those rocks, we are enticed um, and, and we have temptations to use those rocks like the people in the crowd use them today, to stone somebody with them, to lash out in anger and throw that rock at somebody. Or we can choose to set the rock down and offer up a new day and forgiveness. And so, uh, I don't want anybody to feel shamed or, or moved where like, you feel like you have to do this. Um, but during that last hymn, I'm going to carry this around. And if you have your forgiveness rock with you and you decide that you have forgiven that thing, if you just want to drop it in this basket, I think that'd be a wonderful symbol. Um, but if you can't get to that spot and you haven't been able to give up that forgiveness yet, um, I don't want you to feel pressure to do this if it's not actually happening in the heart. A little bit like the uncircumcised heart thing of the story. Like, it doesn't do any good to do something on the outside if it's not true on the inside. So uh, this is an opportunity, but please don't take this as, a, as a, uh, an obligation. Um, but I do hope that this is not just a, hey, we did forgiveness this one time, uh, but that you think about this as pain and as harm and as mistreatment comes your way, when it's easy and when it's hard, that we actually practice forgiveness because we have been forgiven of so much uh, and it's our blessing and our opportunity to open the doors to new paths of forgiveness and peace for others around us. So with that, if you would pray with me. God, we are so grateful and often sometimes still unaware of how much your peace and joy and forgiveness and love uh, is undeserved and underappreciated. Lord, help us to be aware of how we rely so much on others and on you. Lord, help us to have a spirit and a heart of forgiveness. Lord, help us to be change makers who offer peace in the midst of pain, and that we can offer new doors and open spaces for reconciliation and for justice and for, uh, for new days, Lord. Lord, continue to, to move in our hearts in the next songs that we sing in our Sunday school and, and wherever we are going out from this place, Lord. Uh, it's in your name that I pray. Amen.